Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Annie Miller. She's a psychotherapist, part of DC Metro Therapy, and we're going to talk about her work. So, Annie, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Well, very good. Well, well tell me about uh, your psychotherapy practice. You know, what, what got you into it and what do you focus on? Yeah, sure. So what got me into psychotherapy is, you know, I actually have a, a lot of therapists in the family. Um, and so I had some good models of people who, you know, do this work and who enjoy working for themselves. So, it, and also, you know, I'd always just always been really interested in psychology and, you know, the brain. And so I was, it was a kind of a natural fit for me. And so um, actually I started out working in a different field, but I kept kind of gravitating back to this, to this field. And then I would say in the last, you know, five to 10 years have really built this practice in the DC area. So kind of built up a private practice. What, what kind of people do you counsel? Like do you counsel our uh, you know, people in government or like regular folks? So yes, yeah, so a little bit of everything. I mean, yes, in, in DC there's a lot of a lot of government people, politics, stuff like that. So yeah, certainly a lot of different kinds of people are, you know, in the DC area, State Department, stuff like that. And, you know, our practice is really focused on a couple of main things, one of them being sleep and insomnia. Um, you know, the other one being anxiety and you know, also we focus on trauma and then chronic pain. So those are our specialty areas and, you know, anything that's related to that, whatever those, you know, whatever kind of people have those issues, that's what we end up working with and seeing. Yeah, if you don't mind, can I ask you about anxiety? It seems, uh, you know, with the pandemic and stuff, everyone's more anxious than before or head trauma or head trash than before. Like, what are you noticing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think with the pandemic, it has really increased anxiety. You know, I've noticed that it's it's been interesting. Um, there are some people who were actually a lot less anxious when they had to stay home all the time. You know, like people who are generally anxious and introvert type who, you know, were when they like when they were forced to stay at home, they didn't have to interact with people, it was actually a relief. And so that relieved anxiety for some people. And then there were some people who that made them way more anxious. Now that things are starting to really open up, I'm in the DC area. So, you know, things are are certainly getting back to normal here. Um, And that's making a lot of people feel anxious because, you know, we're told stay home, you know, wear a mask, do all this stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's different. And I think it's, it's what I'm really noticing is that, that people are, are anxious going back to their old routines and like doing some activities that they've been told not to do for so long. It's making people feel anxious. I guess there's uh, what people have gotten to the point where wearing a mask, for instance, is a comfort to them or, you know, these protocols for somehow they've, they made them feel safe for so long that they don't want to give them up. Yeah. And also, you know, if you really think about it, we've been told to, you know, to do things a certain way. I mean, we've been told for, you know, over a year, these things aren't safe. And then we have to kind of make that switch in our brain all of a sudden, oh, it's fine to do that. For some people, it's welcome, right? And they're ready to go out and socialize. Other people aren't. And that's hard to make that transition. And they're struggling. So I think it's a mix of both. You know, some people are desperate to get back to, to what they've been doing. And some people just really are struggling. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, I don't know, do you have a section of your psychotherapy literally like post-COVID counseling? Have you labeled it or have you seen any <laughs> therapist label that and you know, apply it? I, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I haven't specifically labeled it myself um, in that way. Listen, I, I kind of think everyone is a little bit co- post-COVID at this point. Um, you know, I think some of us have more resilience with it than others. And some of us are able to kind of, you know, adjust and go back into things. But I mean, I kind of think all of us have it a little bit. And so generally, I mean, I think most therapy practices are pretty busy right now in general. So I think I think most therapists are thinking of themselves as post, you know, post COVID <laughs> just as a whole. Yeah. And I, and I saw somewhere in some article, it's like someone was offering like a re-entry therapy for people to re-enter society. And like you said, some of them were having a hard time with it. So I didn't know if it was, uh, I guess, you know, like you said, therapists are busy. So they don't really need to market it that way, but I guess they're having a lot of conversations around this, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think there's a way to do it. I mean, you know, I think some people need some, you know, kind of exposure activities where you're, you know, starting to get back into doing things a little bit at a time, getting yourself used to it a little bit at a time, which I guess that's how I would think about doing reentry therapy. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think everybody, every therapist kind of has their different approaches, different ways that they do things and different, like, you know, tools that they use with clients. Yeah. What have you noticed about people, you know, over the past year and a half, like, do they, have trouble with, you know, family relationships or is there more problems, you know, with them and their children? Like what, what kind of dynamics have you seen in people's relationships? Uh, you know, what are the changes you've seen? Yeah. You know, I think again, it's, it's kind of all over the map, right? Because I think there, there's some people where the dynamic was, so I'll, I'll give you an example, for instance, like in a couple, let's say where one of the, one of the partners was traveling a lot for work, and then all of a sudden the pandemic shut it down and then, and then they're trapped in, in a house or in a space together. 
you know, that, I think that could go either way. It could be really great. It could be really bad. So I think there's, you know, there's an increase in separation uh, with all of this because, you know, all of a sudden things really changed really quickly. And, but I think some people were just welcomed family time, you know? And so I've seen a whole range. I mean, really, yeah, like really strained relationships where people are driving each other nuts and, you know, it's, it's really tough where, but also I've seen people really get a lot closer and have this valued, amazing family time. And it just depends. It depends on the situation and on the person. But this probably tells you maybe best practices. Like if you see some clients that are really successful with improving their family relationships than other ones where it's a problem, maybe you could, you know, kind of borrow uh, what the successful people are telling you and tell the unsuccessful people here, maybe try this. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what happened is the pandemic just exacerbated a lot of underlying issues that were there. So, you know, if there was family dynamic issues and then everyone's trapped at home, it's just going to, you know, kind of explode at a certain point, right? Because, you know, everything's all intensified. It just, it kind of, it's really specific to the person and to the family and to what's going on with them. It's it's really interesting to see because there's issues that just, I don't know, that I think that we weren't aware of before. Now, you know, you weren't, you didn't really have to think about what it would be like to be trapped, you know, and to be quarantined with people. It just wasn't something that we would have really necessarily thought about. How has this affected the insomnia part of your practice? Has it worsened it for people or, you know, what have you noticed there? Yeah, no, and I'm glad you asked about that because, yeah, that is a big problem right now. You know, I think insomnia as a problem has just really grown. And in, you know, this past year, more and more people are really struggling with insomnia. And I think there's a number of reasons for it related to the pandemic. I'd be happy to to give you my thoughts on if you want. Yeah, yeah, tell me. Yeah, like, so what have you noticed in the insomnia world? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So I'm coming from a place where I, I work with insomnia from a behavioral perspective, right? So I'm helping people change their habits and routines around sleep, also working on their thoughts, their negative thoughts around sleep. So, you know, all of a sudden people aren't commuting anymore. And, and you know, to a large degree, I mean, some people are commuting, but a lot, to a large degree, people are still working from home. So what's happened is their schedules are for more flexible. So, you know, what that's done is it's, it's pushed people to wake up a little later. And when that happens, for some people, that's great. But getting off of a sleep schedule and getting off of a routine can really impact a lot of people. And they're, so then they're up later and then they're kind of all off of a routine. So that can bring on insomnia. You know, the other thing that I think has impacted insomnia is a lot of people don't have small spaces to work from. So people are working in all kinds of spaces, including their bedroom and their bed. A lot of people working in bed. And this is one of the things that I teach people not to do is anything else other than sleep in bed. 
And so when you're working all day in bed, it's really going to impact sleep. Yeah. Well, if I work all day in bed and then, you know, uh, I lay down and go to sleep at night, what happens psychologically that causes me a problem? So what's happening is you're creating an association what, that the bed is for something else other than sleep, right? That's where I sit and work and, you know, in fact, might feel stressed or might, you know, have a deadline or, you know, have to work, like have to get back to someone. And so what ends up happening is then the brain makes that association. So then when you get back to go in bed at night, it, may, it remembers that and it's harder to sleep. So keeping the bed only for sleep is hugely important. That's one of the, you know, the first rules that I talk to people about when it comes to insomnia. Um, yeah, and I would bet too that even before the pandemic, you know, people taking phones into their beds, like, yeah, I got to bug my kids about this. I'm like, turn the phone off and don't have it in the bed next to you because I don't know, you know, they'll never go to sleep if they lay in there on the phone. So I'm sure that's a big part of the problem too. Yeah. And what I tell people, and, and it may be a little surprising to hear this, but it's not necessarily the screens, it's the bed. So I'm fine with someone looking at their phone on a couch, but when it's time for bed, put the phone down and then get in bed. And the, the, the bed is just for sleep, right? So that you were using the bed just for sleep. We're not letting the brain associate anything else with the bed. So trying to create that strong, like Pavlovian response that when you get in bed, you immediately feel sleepy because it's a cue for sleep. Maybe you should tell people that think of your bed as a giant screen that only shows blankets and pillows on it. And maybe then they'll be more willing to go to bed. But <laughs> that's pretty bad. That could be. Well, it's just, I, I think people don't, people underestimate this link that our brain makes. And in fact, people underestimate just the power of conditioning in general and how, how strong of a, you know, how strong these associations can be for our brain. Yeah, I noticed everything you're saying is right. Like in my family, everyone started going to sleep later and later and getting up later and later. And at first, it you know, it seemed to be okay. But yeah, it's a problem. You know, kids don't do well if they go to bed later. And pretty much everybody, you know, I'm, I'm a super late night owl. But uh, the rest of my family has kind of come more into my schedule and it's a problem. So it's then it's harder to get back to an earlier schedule after you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily, some of us are more night owls. Like you, you might be somebody who wants, you know, is kind of inclined to stay up later and maybe sleep a little later. That might be your natural schedule, right? That's not such a bad thing in and of itself, right? What you don't want to do is you don't want to try to force yourself to go to bed early and then just lie there. So this is the other part of insomnia. What I teach people is if you're lying there trying to sleep, you're doing it wrong. Because that also is going to create one of uh, another association, right, with with the bed and stress. And this is where I, you know, kind of freak out because I can't sleep. And so we don't want to allow our brain to make those connections. And so, in fact, going to bed later is not such a big deal. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. If that's your schedule, if that's what you like to do, the key to all this is is really waking up at the same time every day and giving yourself some, you know, some real structure to your wake time, making sure that you really stick to a pretty solid wake time. So even if you do go to bed later than usual one night, still get up at the same time every day. It's not going to be the easiest, most fun day, but you're going to kind of set yourself on a routine and it's going to be better. Yeah. What happens if I want to go to bed by 10? I have to get up at six or something, let's say, and you know, my bedtime is slipped to like one or two. How do I get myself back to the, the old schedule? So then get up at six, right? So you get up you'll at the same dead. time. Yeah, you'll be dead tired the first day at least, but 
how long would it take me to, you know, for, I'm just, as an example, you know, how long would it take someone to uh, get to their old schedule? I mean, I think it depends. I, there's not a set amount of time, but if you like, if, so if you, you give yourself that like short night, right. The first night, you're going to be really tired the next night. And, you know, I think generally, I think people are, are viewing the amount of sleep they need as incorrect. So I think everyone has this eight hour goal and that's not really the case for most people. So like for me, if I sleep eight hours, I don't always feel that great. I actually feel better at seven. And that's the case for a lot of people. So somewhere between six and nine is pretty normal. And if it's six, people really think that's wrong, but it, it, it depends on you and your body. So I think that's part of too, for, for some people, what, um, you know, what, what goes wrong with sleep is they're ending up spending eight hours, like lying in bed, but not eight hours of sleep. And that lying in bedtime is what's making them have more insomnia. Oh, so what happens? Someone lays in bed and uh, what's the average time after which they're like, I'm not falling asleep. What am I going to do? And, you know, when does the psychological problems start happening? You know, how long laying in bed on average? So I tell people 15, 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. And that's it. That's all you get for lying in bed. Oh, so if it's more than that, what does that tell you? So if it's more than that, you know, then that's what we call in behavioral sleep, we call it sleep effort, right? So we are putting effort towards sleep, which you shouldn't be doing because sleep is, isn't something natural. It should come naturally, right? And so, you know, if you're putting a lot of effort towards sleep, that is one of the, the things that can really drive in sleep effort. Yeah, I've had to tell myself sometimes, like, you know, I'm over 40. So I like, sometimes I tell myself, like, look, I've fallen asleep for like 40 plus years without a problem. Why would I have a problem tonight? Or then I thought, oh, I've fallen asleep, you know, about 12,000 times approximately in my life. So I can do it one more time. Things like that, I guess, to help myself. <laughs> I don't know if you've suggested that. Yeah. Well, and, and I, like, I guess my approach is more like, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? So, so if you can't sleep, so what? Because the truth is, everyone is kind of panicked about what's going to happen to them if they can't sleep. And as a parent, right, you mentioned you have children, like, you know, if you have kids, you go through periods of not sleeping, right, when your kids are, are born, or sometimes way after that. And, you know, this, this is part of being a parent. And I, I get a lot of people, a lot of clients that I work with who tell me, you know, I'm concerned about the health problems. I'm, I'm concerned. And people will even say, I'm, I think I'm going to die because I don't sleep enough. And I always give them this example. What are you so worried about? Do you think that like new parents just drop dead? No, right? Because I mean, every, every new parent goes through a pretty significant lack of sleep. No one dies. Nothing bad happens. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, have you, you know, I've heard from some therapists, they'll say like someone comes into their office and they're like, I haven't slept in 20 years and it's not possible. They would be dead. I mean, do you get stories like that? And what do you tell people that say that stuff? Well, yes, that, and that's definitely not true. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, when I, I have, when I do this sleep work with people, I have them keep a sleep diary and, and sometimes, you know, people's perception of what's happening, I, I think is a little bit different from what is actually happening. Sometimes it's hard to tell, but that's something that I, I try to work on with them. But yeah, I, I think people, people tend to feel like that. And, you know, people's perceptions of their sleep, I don't know, a negative perception of sleep, I think impacts it more than the actual sleep itself. So if you're feeling stressed about what your sleep is like and how bad it is, that's going to be way worse for you than actual bad sleep. That's what I tell them. Yeah. I mean, one trick I've tried is like, you know, for me, let's say eight hours is good. If I lay down and I know I have nine hours, it 
it relaxes me and I'm able to sleep better because I'm like, you know what? If it takes me a little while to fall asleep, that's okay because I'll still get the eight. But if, you know, I'm on a tight deadline and I go to bed and it's like, you get seven and a half at best for stress because I'm like, oh no, if I don't fall asleep quick, then it may get only seven or six and a half hours. Yeah. So okay. I don't know if psychologically if that helps help or. You know, maybe, but, but here's the thing is if you're not thinking about it at all, and you're just right. So if, if you know anyone in your life who is a really good sleeper and you think about and you like think about them and you think about what do they do to fall asleep? What do they tell themselves? You know, I, I would say probably they don't have to do much. They don't have to really tell themselves much. And, and their reason is because they're not thinking about it much. They're not worrying. So the ultimate goal is to be able to get to a point where if you sleep, you know, the way you approach it is if I sleep, I sleep. If I don't, I don't. That's it. And that's hard for a lot of people because it's, it's very ingrained in us to be really concerned about how much sleep we get. But the minute you really stop caring about it or stop worrying so much about it, it gets a lot easier. There's a lot less focus on it. Well, and they're like, you know, I don't know. Are there any other tricks that you've come up with to help people? Like, you know, the room should be cooler, not hotter. Make sure your bed is not, you know, a piece of junk that needs to be replaced and lumpy. You know, don't have the TV on. Obviously, don't have the lights on. You know, maybe have some ocean sounds, maybe melatonin. Stuff. I mean, do you have to get into all these tricks with people or is, have you found it's like more straightforward? So I don't use any of those tricks, in fact. But so I can I can give you like a summary of what I do with people is um, so I have the first thing I have people do is is not have a clock in the bedroom at all. So looking at the clock and checking it and counting how many hours. And that, that usually makes insomnia worse. So no clock. Um, what I said about using the bed only for sleep. So making sure that you're only using the bed for sleep and not doing anything else in bed. Um, the other thing that I do is I have people, if you can't sleep, you're going to get out of bed. So again, giving it that 15 to 20 minutes, that's it. And then you're going to get up and get out of bed. Um, now, if you wake up in the middle of the night, same thing, like just not lying in bed pretty much, you know, more than 15 to 20 minutes at any point in the night. I also have people no napping. So I tell them not to nap. If you need to nap, a 15 to 20 minute nap is all you get. And then the other thing that, that I make sure that everyone does is I have them get up at the same time every day, no matter what day it is. So we're not going to sleep later on the weekend. And even though I know people love that, and that's one that a lot of people are tied to, Actually, we can't really catch up on sleep and you're better off getting up at the same time and building what's called sleep drive. So like what we talked about, right, is if you go to bed late one night, you still get up at your 6 a.m. time and you lose sleep. So what? You're building sleep drive, right? The next night, your sleep drive is going to be really high and you're going to be ready to go to sleep. And so instead of like doing what you might normally do, which is go to bed early, you actually, you know, push it to your regular bedtime at least, or later, and then you'll you'll sleep through the night more easily. I guess I guess people use the weekends as a crutch, like, you know, it's okay if I don't sleep well, because in the weekend I'll catch up. So if you kick away the crutch, then, then they have to perform better all week. Yeah, sleeping late, it's tough. It's, it's a, I know, like, that's what teenagers do, right? And, and it's kind of this indulgence for, you know, for adults as well. I'm just going to sleep late, but it doesn't really help. You can't really catch up and you're much better off setting yourself, being consistent and setting yourself on a regular consistent. I can see you'll fool yourself too. Cause you know, I've done that plenty of times and you sleep late and you wake up and you're like, Oh, I feel better. So you think like you did the right thing. 
and therefore the rest of the week it's okay because you're looking forward to like feeling better when you wake up on the weekend because you slept in later. But then Sunday night comes and everyone has a much harder time Sunday night, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And everyone's wondering why, right? But that's why. Well, so so are these suggestions you're giving like the first line of defense? Like, you know, what if someone's like, it just doesn't work for me? You know, what what are some more advanced strategies we have for people? Well, so the way the way I do it with people is I meet with them for a session and I have them keep a sleep diary for two weeks. So I'll look at I'll look at what their sleep diary is telling me and then I will, when we meet again after that, I'll restrict their schedule. So I give them a certain window of sleep based on what their sleep diary shows. So I tell them all those things. But in addition, I give them a window of time. And and as you can imagine, right, people don't love the restriction part. The restriction is to their average. So I this is based on like what they're doing anyways. It just feels a little different. And that really, I mean, this really works. So this this process is is called CBT for insomnia, um, and it's an, a therapy that's seventy to eighty percent effective, which is pretty remarkable for a therapy. Yeah, definitely. What what kind of interesting things have you seen in sleep diaries? Like, what do you ask people to write down, and when you read through them? Maybe that's your favorite bedtime reading, which would be funny. But what, what's in them that's interesting to you that you've noticed? So I think sometimes I have gotten, so there's a little note section in the sleep diaries. They're pretty, you know, they're overall, it's a pretty standard questionnaire. Like what time did you get in bed? What time did you try to go to sleep? How long did it take you to fall asleep? How many times did you wake up? Those kind of questions. It's a very specific, like a particular set of questions, but there's a, a comment section and sometimes people get frustrated with me in the comment section. Comes out that way a little bit. So I, I have seen that happen before. But, you know, in terms of like trends in the sleep diaries, I see I see a lot of people like having, you know, kind of a couple short sleep nights in a row and then a long night and then short, short, long, those kind of things where there's like each person has their own kind of pattern where they um, they find their ways to compensate for sleep. And it's, it's kind of, they've like limped along like that for a while, but, you know, and so doing things a different way, I mean, for a lot of people doing things like changing your, all your habits and routines, for some people, this is like a total relief. And they're like, where's this been all my life? I'm just like ready for this. And then other people, it's just, it's really tough. It's tough going. Yeah. Have you ever done like, you know, field research where you go to like a sleep clinic and watch people sleep or hang out with the technicians and, you know, see like the, I guess the apnea or you know, other nighttime phenomena type things like, or are you confined more to just the, uh, the cognitive psychotherapy side? I myself am, am more on the psychotherapy side. I have not done research in a lab. That, that's a little outside my training. Well, what, I don't know, is there a, a gap? I mean, you said it's about 80% effective, which is fantastic. Are you chasing the last 20% or is there like, what do you think will be any improvements to the therapy you're giving? You know, I think if people can really embrace this, like really welcome it because it's hard, Ch- like changing is hard. Um, you know, I, I also work with chronic pain too. And I run into this issue too, is, is trying to 
make habit changes that are going to impact your life. Like it's, it's really challenging for people to, to do that. And I think sometimes there's just, there's so much resistance and that's part of my job, you know, is to, is to work through the resistance and help people kind of see that some of the thoughts they're having or some of these resistances that it's getting in the way. And that's, that's really what I see my job as being, but I think sometimes the resistances are too much, you know, like for instance, when it comes to sleep, I've had some people say, well, I I just physically need to read in bed and I'm not going to change that. And that's not going to change. And then they just kind of, they just don't, they just can't get on board. I think reading in bed wouldn't be so bad if it's a book instead of like your phone, but you know, are there, are there things people can do that will help them that they don't even know they could do or, you know, I I mean, if we back up, so we talked about Mm -hmm. the going to bed part, you know, no clocks and tell yourself, this is what I'm doing. But what about the preparation part? You know, the hour or two before bed, what are your suggestions there? So my suggestion for the hour or two before bed is yes, have wind down time, stop working. That's what a lot of people do, especially now that they can work from home, right? Your home is the office, so I can work anytime. I'm, again, my concern is not about screen. So there are some people who have, you know, circadian rhythm issues where you know, their body, their circadian rhythm is, and their cycle is off, and they may need to limit their, their screen time a little bit, but they can also, you know, they can use blue light filters on their phone. And I honestly think it's more about just finding relaxing activities. Like if, if it's really relaxing for you to watch TV, that's not a problem. People, I, I personally am not against the screen time before bed. I know, I know some people really feel you know, that that's a problem. But as long as you're doing something that's relaxing, and that's not like overstimulating, I don't think I don't think it's a problem for most people. Like what you said about reading in bed versus the phone in bed, as far as the CBTI goes, you're not allowed to do either one. And so reading in bed is actually not okay. Because like you're saying many times, you know, the only thing should be for sleeping in the bed to remove all other associations. Exactly. Right. And so I, I have people come in and they and they kind of feel like, well, you're going to tell me to take away all my screens, or they they were so kind of focused on the screens, and and I I'm more focused on the bed than I am on the screens. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know. Is there anything they can do with their bed, or again with the room or the ambience, or really like, I mean, do you do you ask people about their sleep environments, or you really haven't seen that that's a factor at all? No, I do, and and you know, like the the amount of light does matter, you know, like having darkening shades and making sure the the temperature is, you know, if you're sleeping in a really hot room, it's not going to, it's not going to be helpful for you for sleep. You know, your body temperature has to cool down to a certain point to be able to fall asleep. And so like a cool, dark room does matter. Um, You know, that stuff does matter. It does. I think what I have learned is that if you're really tired, you're going to sleep and, you know, getting yourself to the point where you're really tired is important right? Every day. So, you know, if you sleep in for two hours on a Sunday, you're not going to be really tired on Sunday night. So that's going to be more impactful than anything else. I guess you got to sleep like a mushroom, cold and dark. Right. And also probably, you know, the not lying in bed as much on the end as you think you should be. Okay. Um. So what's, uh, I don't know, what do you, what, are there any new innovations coming out that, uh, that you're aware of in terms of sleep or, um, you know, we have all the tools we need to address the problem. It's just, you know, getting after it yeah it's just like it's just this red like being open to change you know again you know some people come into this into therapy and they're like you know it takes honestly it can take just a couple weeks and they're 
way better. Usually the first week of this therapy is, is hard for people, but, you know, I think it's just, you know, some, some of us really like, and you know, it's hard. Some of us really like control. Like we really like to be in control and being like a little bit flexible and changing things, doing things differently is hard. Yeah. That makes sense. So you're like the, the tough therapist. No nonsense. This is what you got to do to sleep and that's it. You know, it's funny. I used to not be like this, but, but then, but I've seen it happen, right? So once you see people get better and you like really see them get better, it's just telling people what to do to get better. You know, this, this, it, it, that's what I, yeah, that's what I do. Really. But I also, you know, I also a talk therapist too. So I do work with people who, you know, who, who really do want to kind of delve more into problems. And, and I do that side of it too. It's just, I think if somebody is coming to me to work specifically on sleep, I feel like I have, I have, I know what to do to help them. And so, yeah, I want, I want to get them better. Okay. Well, Annie, so what's the best way for people to, uh, to get in contact if they need help? Where can they find you? So the best place is my website, um, which is dcmetrotherapy.com. And there's a, like a contact page on the website and, and that's usually the best way. Okay. Hey, thank you for coming on the podcast and I uh, appreciate your, your brutal honesty in terms of helping people get better. So I hope that people listening, uh, take it to heart and realize that, you know, you do what you do because it works, not because you're just trying to be nice to people. So, so thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.